Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from firmsconsulting.com that goes out every Monday where we distill the insights from all the noise out there. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8 a.m. by searching for strategy skills in any podcast app, or you can get a written version of the podcast with the links to all the articles, pieces, and insights we mentioned by signing up at firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. So here are the big themes we are seeing in the news over the last week. The first theme is what I would call all stakeholders are not equal. And two articles exemplify this, one in the Financial Times and the other one in the Wall Street Journal. The one in the Financial Times talks about a press release put out by Continental Auto Group, which is a German part supplier to the automotive manufacturing sector. They make tires and so on. And there they announced that there's going to be a significant amount of employment cuts, redundancies, for lack of a better word, due to the large shift towards electric and mobility in the automotive sector. At the same time, the Wall Street Journal reports that as Cadillac, which is owned by General Motors in the United States, prepares a big shift towards electric cars, and is about to launch an all-electric SUV, they are acquiring their dealerships to make upgrades to handle the sales and servicing of electric vehicles. And there are quite a few dealerships who are not convinced that the upgrades will generate the return on investment they want. And those dealerships are allowing Cadillac to buy them out. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is not unexpected. It's not that GM is doing anything bad or wrong or Continental is doing anything bad or wrong. When you're going through any change in your strategy, the current shareholders and stakeholders you have is going to change. Because as your business changes, the people who want to be invested in you, associated with you, supplying with you, working with you, they're going to change. There are some people, and they're not good or bad, who just don't want to be in the electric car business servicing Cadillacs. They may believe there's a future in electric. They may be the most climate-aware individuals, but they just don't feel Cadillac is the brand that's going to make the electric transition, and they would rather open another dealership with another brand that's going to go electric. As GM changes, as Continental changes, The people that were supporting GM previously, that were supporting Continental previously, that were supporting other companies that are going to be going through major transitions, they may decide that they want to not be associated with this company anymore. And there's nothing wrong with this. You know, many years ago, I used to do a lot of investor relations strategies because that was part of the work the strategy and corporate finance practice did. And I remember that um, speaking, I remember speaking to the CEO and the chief financial officer of a a major resources company. And they had brought us in just after their investor relations team had done a series of interviews with the investment community. 
And the interviewers asked one question. Are you, aka the investment community, are you going to be happy or are you pleased with our decision to diversify? And the investment community said no. And they said they're going to sell the shares if they're diversified. And there were two camps at the company. One was saying, okay, if our shareholders leave, we're in a lot of trouble. And the other one is saying that, well, there are a lot of diversified companies, so clearly we can be a diversified company as well. But no one had been able to make the argument or been able to explain the logic of what was going to happen to them if they shifted. Well, the logic goes as follows. In corporate finance, you are taught that a company does not need to diversify because shareholders can always diversify. That's true, but it also implies if a company is not diversified and their core product fails, the company fails. But the implication is that capitalism has such efficient processes to redeploy the capital that the capital will be saved and be redeployed to another company or another investment, but the company will fail. But what if you don't want your company to fail? So what would happen, and the, the explanation we, we presented to them is that, yes, some of your shareholders are going to flee because you're not the company they want to be anymore. Because those investors have a portfolio of assets and they buy your shares to balance their portfolio of assets to get a certain risk and reward profile. When you become a diversified company, the contribution or the type of impact your shares has on their investment profile changes. You, changes, you will change the risk and return profile of their bag of investments. So of course they're going to sell you. But if they sell you, someone else in the world also owns a bag of investments. And they're going to want your equity to balance out their portfolio. So all you're seeing here is some investors are going to leave and others are going to take you up. But that's not a bad thing. Provided your strategy is sound, provided you're doing all the right things, provided you're creating economic value, you're managing risk, someone is going to want your shares. You may not know who those people are, which is why you haven't interviewed them yet. But we have to find who those people are and educate them about the changes you're making so that other institutional shareholders who want to own a diversified conglomerate will buy into your shares. A version inspired by that study is going to be coming to our advanced knowledge management system, aka slides, so you can see the exact thought process we used to help this company make this transition. Now, it's a very big theme because I would say every major company in the world is going to be thinking about this. As your strategy changes, as you invest more behind climate and so on, how do you convince your board, how do you convince management that an uproar from investors and stakeholders is expected because your strategy must and will force some stakeholders to leave and why that's normal and how do you prepare to bring in new stakeholders to take their place? If you're a firm's consulting insider, you can see that with the corporate strategy and transformation study. Empire International is changing its business model. It's moving away from servicing and for-profit activities to basically becoming a servicing engineering construction arm of Empire Energy. All the shareholders and all the stakeholders that bought into Empire Energy on the basis that one day they'll go private and they'll have the for-profit Empire International profits to bolster them are not going to be so pleased. But that's a realignment of shareholders as well and stakeholders. And if you want to see how to do that, that study is available to firms consulting insiders. The other big theme is what I call injuries are not the worst liabilities in pro sports. So there's been a few articles and I'm going to relate specifically to the one in the Financial Times 
which provides a pretty good summary of private equity firms and American billionaires, mostly, I'm sure there are Chinese billionaires as well, trying to buy into pro sports, whether it's Formula One, soccer, football, rugby, and so on. And even Ryan Reynolds, the Hollywood A-list actor, I think has bought a football team somewhere in the United Kingdom. But the question is, whenever you're doing a due diligence, whenever you're doing any acquisition, you've got to decide what you are buying and what you're excluding from the purchase, not just assets, but also liabilities. And when you know what you are buying and what you're excluding, both from an asset and liability side, you know what to insure against and what to insure for. Because if you decide you are not exposed to a liability, you will not be insured for that. But here's the thing. If you buy a football team and you say, based on every transaction that's ever gone down the pipeline, based on all historical data, this liability is not going to be a liability you will face, you won't even worry about planning for it. But what happens when consumer trends and judgments change in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What happens when the discussion that's now taking place with the NFL about brain injuries and concussions to athletes starts taking place in rugby, in soccer? What happens in 20 years when there's consumer sentiment shifts to say all those companies and all those sports that encouraged behavior like the purchasing of fossil fuels, a.k.a. buying fancy sports cars as, you know, as encouraged by Formula One. What happens if the consumer sentiment says those companies should be held liable? I don't know. I can't predict how the world's going to change. But the challenge with a lot of the purchases taking place in professional sports is they are looking far enough ahead about what liabilities are going to come down the pipeline. There is almost certainly going to be a discussion about concussions in rugby if it's not already taking place. There's almost certainly going to be a discussion about football injuries. There's almost certainly going to be a discussion about any motorsport that emits negative or toxic gases into the environment. And if that discussion takes place at some point, someone's going to start assigning liabilities. So as companies go through this huge ramp up in investments in pro sports, the deep insight is, are they doing the right level of due diligence in understanding the risks and liabilities that may not be apparent today, but may be coming down the pipeline in five to 10 years? You can look at big tobacco. I'm not comparing pro sports to big tobacco. I'm not comparing Formula One to big tobacco. But what I'm saying is that there's a lot of precedent for not seeing a liability and not taking it seriously because not enough people thought it would become mainstream. And, pro, and Big Tobacco struggled and fought valiantly for many years to convince the world that they were not responsible for those liabilities. And if you look at the Bill Madisoni show season three, which will be coming out, the man who took on Big Tobacco, the guy who orchestrated the entire campaign to bring them to heel, is going to be a guest on the show where he talks through the strategies and the tactics they deployed. Now, if you are a firm's consulting insider, if you go to the electric car startup program, you will see the very detailed and very painstaking process we used when we ran the M&A process, the acquisition process, to acquire an automotive company that had some of the core capabilities we wanted to build the automotive business. And what you'll find in that particular case, we worked with a well-respected audit company to help us with the due diligence. But because we are not their biggest client, 
in terms of revenue, we, they were basically working for us for free because they wanted access to our investment partner, which was a Chinese state-owned entity. I don't feel they put their best people onto that audit. And in many situations, we'd get back the results of the audit and we'd ask, did you check this document? How did you check this document? And they'd say something like, well, the company gave us copies of it. And I said, no, nothing you are auditing must come from the company we want to acquire because it's human nature for them to try to present the best light for themselves. I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong, but they'll try to make themselves look good. So if you want to check whether they own the patent or something, I don't want you to contact the company for the patent number. I want you to contact the patent office independent of the company. If the company says they have a certain amount of cash in hand, I don't want you to get a bank statement from the CFO. I want you to contact the bank and I want you to get them to fax you everything on a secure line. That's the level of detail you need to do when you're assessing liabilities you know. Can you imagine the deep difficulties when you're assessing liabilities you don't know? And the thing about risk is it's always assumed that the biggest risk is risk of implementation. That's not true. A strategy has an embedded risk in it whereby no matter how successful that strategy is, you can't mitigate some of that risk. I'll give you an example of this. If you're an investor and you invested all of your stocks in tech companies, and you invested very successfully, very carefully, and as best as anyone can, you can't avoid the fact that there is a risk there because you've got all your eggs in one basket. So no matter how well you execute this deal, no matter how well you manage it, the fact that all of your investments are in one basket means there is a level of risk that is inherent to that strategy. It's not risk of execution, it's the fact that even if everything went right, there's a level of risk in there that you need to think about. On the other hand, if you went for a very diversified portfolio whereby if tech stocks went down, something else would go up and balance you out, in that situation, your risk of your strategy is obviously different from the risk of the strategy of investing everything in only tech stocks. You need to remember that every strategy you take, even ignoring and factoring the risk of implementation, there's a risk in that strategy. And you need to think about how to calculate that. For firms consulting insiders who have access to slides, our advanced knowledge management system, we are going to be putting up something on that during one of the updates to slides. It's one of the most important studies we'll be releasing. So the third big theme I'm seeing, and this one goes out to Disney and Netflix, who have been posting record-breaking numbers in terms of their streaming uptake. Both of them, Disney Plus and Netflix, are seen as the front-runners in the streaming wars. And you could even add in Amazon Prime as well. The other players, Peacock, HBO Max, Apple TV, CBS, and so on, as seen as those who are not as successful. The Financial Times has a few articles on this. And there's been a lot of press that Disney Plus is winning, Netflix is winning, HBO Max is losing. But if you think about this carefully, maybe they are losing, but I don't think they are losing. And the reason I don't think HBO Max is losing is because I don't think what HBO Max is trying to do is the same as what Netflix and Disney Plus are trying to do. I think HBO Max and Apple TV need to be measured separately with separate metrics. You know, in a simple example of this, if, if someone goes to university, gets all B averages and ends up in an average job, you could call them a failure. But they're only a failure relative to what they hoped and wanted to achieve. If they achieved more than what they wanted to achieve, then are they a failure or are they a success? What I mean by this is that when you look at the numbers for Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max, Apple TV, and here's a deep insight, we are measuring them as if 
winning with the most amount of streaming audience numbers is the metric of success. And it's probably not. HBO Max and Apple TV are parts of a bigger empire. They are divisions of an empire. In corporate strategy, we teach you very clearly that business unit strategy must enable and support the corporate strategy. It doesn't supersede it. It doesn't displace it. It doesn't change it. The question you have to ask yourself is, what is AT&T's corporate strategy? What is Apple's corporate strategy? And then what is the strategy, the business unit strategy for HBO One Media? And what is the business unit strategy for Apple TV? And is it doing what it's supposed to do to support the corporate strategy? And if the answer is yes, then it's a very big success. But just because HBO Max doesn't have the same number of streamers as Disney Plus and is not going as fast does not mean they failed at all. I'll give you an example of this. AT&T is a telecoms giant. Now, when I, back when I was a partner, senior partner dealing with telecoms companies, I remember the biggest thing telecoms companies was worried about was churn. Churn is the number, the net number of people who cancel their contracts, whether it's uh, prepaid or postpaid contracts. They're most worried about postpaid because postpaid uh, contracts tend to be worth more than prepaid. And telecoms companies understand churn better than just about anyone. Here's the thing. If HBO Max brings in a million subscribers to HBO Max, is it better than HBO Max preventing a million postpaid cellular subscribers from canceling from AT&T? Here's another scenario. What if HBO Max doesn't grow much? In fact, it shows no growth over the next quarter, but it prevents a million AT&T postpaid subscribers from canceling. I'm pretty sure because AT&T has an entrenched cost base, most of it fully depreciated, the infrastructure already in place, and because the fees are much higher, the value of a million postpaid subscribers not canceling on their cellular contracts is worth far more than a million HBO Max subscribers joining. The same principle applies to Apple TV. It doesn't matter if Apple TV doesn't win an award. It doesn't matter if nobody talks about the shows. The shows are good, by the way. What matters is, is Apple TV allowing Apple to reach its overarching corporate objective? And if the answer is yes, then Apple TV is a success and HBO Max is a success. But that doesn't mean it's a failure if it doesn't compare favorably on a peer-to-peer -peer basis to Netflix and Disney Plus because it's not supposed to do that. You know, churn entering the market is a big deal. For firms consulting insiders who are who have access to our slides advanced knowledge management system because streaming is such a big business because there's so much happening with telcos with 5g networks and so on we will be making a big update to slides whereby we'll be showing a lot of the thinking that goes into how firstly telcos cannot be left behind in the 5g rollout in so far as they want to be players in capturing the value that will be built on it they don't just want to be dumb pipes they want to deliver something valuable down that. And second, we also want to look at how they manage churn, which again is relevant to any single e-commerce company that's managing churn. The fourth theme, the big one, is a story in the Wall Street Journal about utilities that made a big bet into renewables 15, 20 years ago and are now starting to see their valuations increase to match that of the traditional oil giants. And there's much that can be said about this, but I think the deepest insight here is how do you value and build a business case for R&D and innovation? Because I was working with oil companies, the most senior leaders in oil and gas and resources, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 
when they were making these decisions about whether to invest in renewables. Some did it, some didn't do it. But at that time, nobody knew what was going to happen because it comes down to this. You have to make a bet on a technology that's unproven, but you're betting that it will improve to the point whereby you can start generating profits. So how do you make that bet? When do you make the bet? When everyone can see the economics make sense, it's usually too late. And can you fund the transition away from your legacy assets that will eventually decrease and die to something that will be very successful? That's a difficult thing. And the corporate strategy and transformation study, which is available to firms consulting insiders, we talk about building power stations, but one of the big debates is what type of power station do we build? Do we build a new modular nuclear reactor? Do we build a combined cycle gas turbine? Do we build a new type of gas turbine? Do we build a new type of coal station? Do we believe that the technology we want to install to make our coal stations carbon neutral are actually going to work? Because if they fail, we're probably going to be penalized for the next 40 years. Do we go down the path of an unknown nuclear technology that's been unproven, but potentially could save us 50% of the operating and capital costs? How do you make those decisions? There's a difficult decision to make, but here's the deep insight. The deep insight is this. You almost need a hybrid strategy. You need a two-speed corporate strategy. On the one side, you have to manage and continue maintaining and investing in your legacy assets because they produce the cash flow that's going to fund you into your new assets. And R&D is expensive. Where you take the money, where you take the capital from the legacy assets and where you put it, you must make sure you're picking a trend that makes sense. How are you going to succeed in that trend? Where are you going to play in the value chain? That's corporate strategy, and you can see it in the study. But you've got to do two things. You've got to have a hybrid model, two-speed model. You've got to keep your legacy assets, and you've got to switch. Now, you're seeing many companies doing this right now. I mean, just about every oil and gas major is looking at it. Sovereign wealth funds, even Norway, which built most of its wealth from oil and gas, is still keeping the oil and gas investments, but it has a plan to migrate and transition. And this is about the economics of innovation and big bets. You can't abandon legacy assets. You've got to nurture them, but you've got to be starting the process to transition. And the process doesn't happen overnight. It's a 10, 15-year process. So if you haven't started the plan to transition, you're setting yourself up for a 15-year journey, and you might as well start now. The final thing I want to say is that as people look at building their careers over Christmas, many of you will be getting performance reviews. You'll be getting feedback from colleagues. You'll be reevaluating your life. A lot of it is going to come down to your ability to have a conversation with someone in your company to convince them to support you, give you access to your new role and so on. And you've got to think about how to make that happen. What normally happens is when you get to the point where you want to have this conversation, you're quite fed up with where you are. You're disappointed. You didn't get the bonus you want. You're stuck at home with the virus. Things are not looking good. So you're a little bit um, agitated, for lack of a better word. And when you're in this agitated state, it's very difficult to step back and say, you know what, this is the critical part to get me there, and I have no choice but to follow the critical path. And what invariably happens is that it becomes so difficult to stick to a strategy that we know is going to save our career that we back out of it and do something else. Now, I always say that the Andrew program is one of the best programs we have, and that's available to insiders. But there's a part in the Andrew program where I show Andrew how he needs to have eight interactions with a very important manager to get this manager 
to back him on a critical initiative. If this manager does not back him, Andrew's critical path fails. That means he cannot get to the next level. He can't move his career forward. So what you've got to think about here is that obviously taking eight meetings to convince anyone is a lot of work. I don't expect you to do that all the time. But if you really have just a few paths to change your career, and let's assume you only have one path to change your career, we'll call that the critical path. You have to do what you have to do to convince the people to support you without alienating them. And we teach that a lot in our case interview programs as well, which is available to premium members. But it is not something easy to do. And it's not something that you do for everyone. But it can be done. And those eight moves show you that when you are facing a position whereby you either have a choice to leave a business and abandon all of the intellectual property you developed, all of the relationships you developed, it sounds cool and sexy and exciting to join a new company, but it's not easy. Unless you are lucky enough to start on a good footing and build your name rapidly, you're starting with a major deficit. In your current company, you don't really have a deficit, but you don't know how to move forward. There's a, that's a big difference. And what the Andrew program shows is that at that time, Andrew wanted to leave his company and go somewhere else to a mid-tier professional services firm from one of the largest professional services firms in the world. But it didn't make sense for me to encourage him to incur this deficit when he moved. What made more sense is to find the critical path for him to change his career and then teach him how to move past certain senior managers that were a barrier for him. Unfortunately, for many of you listening to this, you're going to have emotional baggage when wanting to sit down with some of those people who control your career. But the thing I want to tell you is that you need to move past that. You need to remember that no matter how bad a relationship with someone is, it's always better to build your career in your current business than to go somewhere else. Because when you interact with another company during recruitment, you interact with the people who like you, who want you to join, who say good things about you. But when you join, you're going to be working with people who didn't recruit you, who didn't like you, who didn't want you to join. And then you see how much of a deficit you have. So my advice is that as you're plotting out a career path, your first choice is always to build something of value where you are now. Find the critical path. There are going to be people you have to work with that you don't like, but it may take up to eight sessions of interactions to change their minds, and you can do it. I remember when I was headhunted as a senior partner to head up a boutique consulting firm. It took me about eight meetings with a very, very senior person, a very another senior partner, who had access to all of the key energy clients to convince him that the strategy I had made sense. And then he backed me and he opened many doors for me. But it wasn't easy. But that was something I had to do or I could not turn around that boutique consulting firm. You need to realize that while it's easy to leave, it's much harder to start something new. So work with what you have, even if it doesn't feel like the best option you have. Because in real terms, it usually is the best option. And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com. And there is a deadline, so you should do this sooner rather than later, and you should write to support to find out the deadline. We will give you a complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. Some of the video courses will come out this year. 
others will come out next year so please write to support to understand all of the criteria but as always i hope you're enjoying this podcast series and we will see you next week monday at 8 a.m and that's it for today's episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed doing the episode finally i want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers the only way to get our special pricing and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.